do you ever try to tell Jesus what to do? (laughs) Do you ever try to get Jesus to do what you want him to do? Of course you do. We've just done it. You know, every time we ask him to do something, we're asking Jesus to do something. Now, we're usually careful. We don't want to sound presumptuous. We try to remember our place. I'll never forget the time I went into a hospital room and heard a man praying for a patient. I'm sure he thought he was praying, but it sounded more like demanding to me. Tina mentioned having the same experience as a nurse just this last week. With a loud voice, I heard this man say, Jesus, heal. Now, I've trained dogs. And when I heard that, all I could think of was ordering a dog to walk by my side. That is no way to talk to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And most of us wouldn't think of giving orders to Jesus. But we do often find ourselves trying to get him to do what we want. And we're disappointed if he doesn't. You know, we don't understand. And would really like to know why he didn't do what we wanted him to do. But in those moments, we need to step back and remember who he is and who we are. We must remember that we are in no position to tell him to do anything. We can ask. We can express our desires. We can give thanks. We can worship. But we better be careful about making demands. Or even claiming promises as if he owes us something and we've come to collect. Now, I realize the child of a king has liberties that ordinary subjects do not have, and their boldness before the throne can be shocking. But we better not become presumptuous in the presence of the king, no matter how close we feel we are to him. Jesus' brothers apparently thought they were in a position to tell Jesus what to do. And they tried to get him to do what they wanted. But it didn't work. We learn of their attempt in the seventh chapter of John's gospel. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee... For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. After 
these things. That's the way John introduces chapters 5, 6, and 7. He intentionally jumps over events that are recorded by other gospel writers, but now Jesus has been involved in his public ministry for about two and a half years. Six months have passed since the feeding of the 5,000, and it had probably been close to a year and a half since Jesus had been in Jerusalem. John notes that Jesus was walking in Galilee, the northern province of Palestine. But he was doing far more than just walking there. It was there that he officially called the twelve to be his disciples. It was there that the bulk of his teaching took place. That's where the Sermon on the Mount was preached and where he performed most of his miracles. And it was not by accident. He was intentionally avoiding Judea, the southern province, because the Jewish leaders there were seeking to kill him. We discovered that back in chapter 5. You may recall that while on a visit to Jerusalem to attend a Passover celebration, he healed a man at the pools of Bethesda on the Sabbath. When he defended his right to do so by claiming equality with God, he made more than a few enemies. To avoid unnecessary confrontation, he stayed in the north. And he continued doing what he had come to do, teaching those who had ears to hear, those who would listen to him. For the past six months, he had actually been focusing most of his attention on the twelve, trying to get them ready for what was ahead. But the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was fast approaching. This was a Jewish fall festival. It took place in what would be our early October, lasted eight days, and was a time of great festivity and and, and celebration. It uh, commemorated God's provision for the children of Israel in the wilderness when they lived in tents and temporary dwellings. And to celebrate, everyone made booths or tabernacles of branches and headed to Jerusalem for a big camp out. It was one of the three major feasts that every adult male, Jewish male, living within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to attend. And even those who weren't required by Jewish law to attend tried to attend. There would no doubt be a large group of pilgrims traveling from Galilee to attend, and Jesus' brothers thought he should go. They thought it was time for him to return to Jerusalem. Now, just so you understand, they really were his brothers, or perhaps more accurately, his half-brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were their names. Earlier, they had joined forces with their mother, Mary, to try to convince Jesus to return to Nazareth. They thought he had lost his senses because of what he was saying and doing. Now they decided he should go to Jerusalem. And the reasons for insisting that he go made a lot of sense. They knew that people from all over Palestine would be going to Jerusalem, and most of them really wanted to see Jesus. And in their opinion, he had been spending way too much time in Galilee. If he were to have an impact on the world, 
It was time to leave Peoria and head for Chicago or New York or Hollywood. They reminded him that if you don't, don't do things in secret or obscurity, if you want to make a name for yourself. Now, he'd been performing his miracles for the wrong crowd. It was time to go to Jerusalem and do his works there. And what they said made sense. But it also made sense when the devil suggested that Jesus go to Jerusalem and throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple. That would have no doubt created quite a stir. Everyone would have known who he was immediately. But it would have drastically changed the character of his ministry. You know, miraculously declaring himself to be the Messiah in the center of Jerusalem would have started him down the political road to power. But that was not his plan. But both suggestions made sense. But they may have both come from the same source. The one who wanted to see Jesus fail in his mission, Satan himself. And John makes it clear that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And that certainly makes their motive for telling him what to do suspect at best. You know, maybe they were tired of having to answer for their brother to the local believers or unbelievers. Maybe they just found it hard to believe that the brother they had grown up with was actually the son of God. Maybe they just wanted to get things settled once and for all and figured going to Jerusalem would make him or break him. Whatever their motive, they were telling Jesus what to do, or at least trying to do so. Let's see how he responded. Jesus, therefore, said to them, my time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Jesus knew the importance of timing. He knew he would eventually have to go to Jerusalem. But it wasn't time for him to go, not yet. My time, he said, is not at hand. Now, he will use that and similar phrases quite often, stressing the importance of doing what had to be done at the right time. And he knew what the right time would be because he knew the Father's time schedule. He wasn't trying to avoid the inevitable by staying in Galilee. He was doing what had to be done before going to Jerusalem. He was making preparations to go. And he would go to Jerusalem openly, amid much fanfare, triumphantly, ready for the final confrontation. But it would be on Passover when they were celebrating the death of the Lamb and the salvation that came through his blood, not during the Feast of Tabernacles. Simply wasn't time for him to openly march into Jerusalem. His brothers, they could go to the festival at any time because they were of the world. No one was waiting to confront them. The world didn't hate them because they were of the world. They were unbelievers. 
Now, after the resurrection, that would change. And in Acts 1.14, we'll find them listed with the believers. A couple of them even wrote books in our New Testament. But for now, they were of the world. So they had nothing to fear from the world. But the world hated Jesus because he exposed its evil nature. So he had to be very careful to do things at the right moment to follow his father's schedule very carefully. And it wasn't time for him to go to the festival. So he told his brothers to go without him. And having said these things, he stayed in Galilee, but not for long. Let's read on. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were asking, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now, is there a problem here? A German theologian commenting on this text once said, Jesus Christ did of set purpose utter a falsehood. (laughs) Did Jesus lie to his brothers? According to verse 8, he said, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Then in verse 10, we read, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. It sounds like he said one thing and then did something else. The problem, however, disappears in about half of the manuscripts. They read, I do not yet go up to the feast. And even in the other half, the implication is is, is clear. He was simply indicating that he wasn't going with them. It wouldn't have been wise for him to travel with the pilgrims and arrive in Jerusalem surrounded by hundreds of followers. That would have spelled trouble before its time. So he sent his brothers on ahead with the pilgrims, and then he secretly started for Jerusalem, planning to arrive later in the week. He was being sensitive to God's timetable, and it was a good thing he was. For as John notes, the Jewish leaders were looking for Jesus at the feast. They were waiting for him, and the people were stirred up. The Jewish Supreme Court's intent had apparently been leaked. And the multitudes were grumbling. Some thought he was a good man, and others insisted he was nothing but a troublemaker. No one was protesting yet, because everyone was afraid of the authorities. But if Jesus had gone to Jerusalem with his brothers, he would have arrived in a hornet's nest. The multitudes were buzzing, and the Jews were ready to kill him. 
If he had arrived at the beginning of the feast, the Jews would have had time to orchestrate his arrest and execution, as they would do six months later. But by arriving in the middle of the feast, the crowds had calmed down, and the leaders had lowered their guard, and Jesus was actually able to go right into the temple and start teaching. He knew what he was doing. His and his father's timing was perfect. There's an obvious lesson for us to learn here. Our Lord knows what he's doing. And his timing is perfect. And it's not our place to tell him what to do or when to do it. We can ask for a favor, and he may grant it, but he might say no. Or he might say, not now. Those are the responses to prayer most of us have been taught to anticipate. Yes, no, or not now. Years ago, Gloria Carroll noted there might be something even better. She had heard that the possible responses we should expect are yes, wait, or I've got something better for you. (laughs) I really like that. I really like that. The bottom line, however, is that he knows what he's doing. And it's not our place to tell him to do otherwise. Rather than telling Jesus what to do, we should be surrendering to his will. If we have the faith to do that, we will be spared a lot of anxiety and frustration in life. And we'll have the assurance that his will is being worked out in our lives according to his schedule. What more could we want? We surrender to his lordship. He has confirmed his love. He's in control. He's given us freedom to come before him to ask anything that's on our heart. But he's asked us to have enough faith to trust him. To do what's right at the right moment. And let him be God. Let's surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords today. Let's stand.